Good day, friends. This is Reiko Zek, the pastor at St. Paul's. You're listening to Jesus in the Center, one-year Bible podcast. Today is day 28, and I may or may not be a day behind. So if you're a day behind or you get behind here and there as you're reading through the Bible, well, that's just life. I'm grateful that uh, we can read together, that God opens his word to us each and every day, as it says in the Psalms, that his mercy is new every morning. So we come today, whether it's morning or middle of the night, uh, we we gather around God's word today. We're going to read Exodus, the very end of chapter 5, and then 6 and 7, Matthew 18 and 19. And of course, we have Psalm 23, a beautiful psalm. I pray that God blesses your reading and you keep on learning. Well, we ended yesterday, the reading at the end of chapter 5, Moses is in despair because, well, it hasn't gone so well. Pharaoh is like, nope, I'm not going to let you all go. I need this group of slaves to keep building my cities. No, I'm not going to let you go. The Israelites, the Jewish people, they get mad at Moses and Aaron saying, what have you done to us? We don't think God has appeared to you. You're just wasting our time and making our life horrible. So Moses turns to the Lord and says, oh Lord, why have you done evil? or Why have you allowed trouble? Moses looked to the Lord and then he looked to Pharaoh and he sees evil coming from both of them. And then the beginning of chapter six starts out and God answers his prayer. It says, the Lord said to Moses, now, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh for with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his hand. So Moses is encouraged. Okay. It's been hard so far. By the way, this is only the beginning. We know that. It's been hard so far. He cries out to the Lord and the Lord answered him, Now you will see. Yahweh says that he will deliver them from Egypt. He'll redeem them and, and all those things. He will bring them out, deliver. The second thing is he will create a covenant people. He says, I will take you to be my people. He's going to create them. They're already his people, but he's going to, in a sense, make them his people Third thing is he will give them this relationship of knowing God. He says, I will be your God and you will know that I am Yahweh, your God. And the fourth thing he promises them is land. He says, I'll bring you into the land that I promised you. So those are the four things, deliverance, this peoplehood, this relationship with their God and the the land to live on. So Moses is encouraged. He goes uh, well, first we have a little bit of background of Moses and Aaron and their genealogy, how they're descended from Levi. You may have caught this, that Moses's aunt and his mom are the same person. Well, yeah, I was kind of thinking about this. That's odd, very odd, and not, not cool. However, if, if Moses, the author of this, is just making this up and he wants to cast himself in a good light, he wouldn't have put that in. He wouldn't have admitted this fact, but he, he includes it because it's true, true to life. It's real. Anyway, in chapter 7, then we see that God will send some plagues. He says the reason for the plagues is this. Verse 5 is very important. You may want to highlight this. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Also, this same thing is recurring many times throughout Exodus and the whole Old Testament. You will know I am God by the things I do. And these plagues are are some of these things that God is doing to show his power. And, and we might even think each of these 10 plagues is almost an attack against one of, especially the first nine, an attack against one of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And 
we could look at that if you want. The tenth one is an attack against their identity. The tenth one is the they are the firstborn. And I think I mentioned yesterday that Pharaoh would have said they would have said that Pharaoh is God's firstborn, his preeminent one. In fact, he is God himself or a god. And so this last one, the tenth one of striking down the firstborn, it was an attack against that theology. All right, so we see that Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh, and they throw down their, their staff. It turns into, into a snake. All right, cool. God is going to do signs to show that he is God. I can't do that. You probably can't do that. Well, the Egyptian magicians, they, they do it. They have some magical power. They do it. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Wow, that's cool. All right, you can do magic. Well, my magic is stronger it's not magic. It's from this God, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth. Verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Well, that's going to be the recurring theme. No matter what God does, Pharaoh has already hardened his heart. His heart has already been let go to be hardened by the Lord. Well, there's this first plague of the water and of the Nile being turned into blood. It happens, Moses and Aaron do this sign, and the magicians also do it. It's like, oh, think for a minute here. If these magicians or these court priests work for you and you're Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron turn the Nile River and all the ponds and whatever into blood. All the fish are dying. It's stinking throughout the whole land. And then you have your priests who are paid to say the incantations and the recitations of of the prayers to these different gods, what would what do you want them to do? You want them to reverse it, right? You like make it stop, turn the blood back into water. What do they do? They also turn some water into blood. Whatever water is left, I don't know. Maybe there's some water in Pharaoh's house, and that turns into blood when these magicians do their thing. It's like guys, you're doing it backwards. Undo it, but they can't. So we'll see this throughout. Pharaoh hardens his heart and he rejects this sign from God. And we're left hanging. What's going to happen? All right, well, we'll pick that up tomorrow. Let's flip over to our readings in Matthew. We have Matthew 18 and 19. We have one is a parable about forgiveness and the second is a teaching about divorce. So let's jump right in. Right away, so Peter comes up and says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And you probably heard sermons seven. That's pretty generous. Others might say one or two or zero. But Peter is lofty in his spirituality. And he says, as many as seven. And Jesus says, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Uh, sometimes uh, it's this might be translated 70 times seven, right? A whole bunch of times. In other words, keep on forgiving always. Be a forgiving person. And remember, this follows on on the instructions of what to do when a brother sins against you. You don't just let it go. Don't just forgive him. Go. Don't just sweep it under the rug because this sin against you or this sin in general may destroy your brother. It may be this thing that makes them lose their faith. Think for a moment, how many doors or windows does a burglar need to break to get into your house? Just one. Jesus tells us that it is our responsibility to be our brother's keeper, to go to our brother when they sin against you or sin grievously against God and they they need to be turned back to the Lord. Uh, He says it is our job as members in the church to, to do that in love.
so this answer to Peter's question, how many times should I forgive? It's in this context of the church forgiving, of the church restoring a repentant sinner. And of course, it applies to our own personal lives and family lives as well. All right, so you know the story. You read it. Isn't it amazing? There's a man who has a servant, a king who has a servant, and this servant owes him so much money. How? What did he do? Did he steal all the money? Did he waste it in business? Did he uh, did he uh, hide it under his pillow? You would think so, except it's so much money. It's it's like the national debt of England and America put together. It's it's crazy. It's obviously a made up number, uh, a gazillion, so much. And then to put on their talents, ten thousand talents. Talent was this unit of money. It's the biggest amount of currency that you can have, and it's it was worth about twenty years' wages for a common person. So ten thousand talents. It's just so much. This guy owes the king all that much. And think if you owed, you know, you have to pay off the the debt of uh, America, which is how many trillions? I don't even want to think about it. What if you were in debt that much? And the government came and knocked on your door and said, all right, well, we're going to have to sell your tractor. Uh, We're going to have to take your car and uh, hopefully we'll be able to pay off this debt. Well, will that pay it off? No, that's not even a not even a drop in the bucket. And so the king throws the this guy into a debtor's prison and out of, you know, then he cries out, he fell on his knees and he implores him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. All right, this guy's insane. Can he ever pay it back? No. And I think that's the point. That's that's what Jesus is driving at. We cannot pay off our debt before God, before our brothers and sisters. We need to be justified. That is forgiven. We need it, we need to be reckoned as righteous. All right. And so the king, out of pity for him, the the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Release is to let it go. Forgive is to cancel the debt. Wow. Can you imagine if that was the case for you? You would be rejoicing. This is where we want the story to end, right here. The guy was forgiven, and he has a fresh start. He owes nothing. That is the case uh, for us before God. However, it doesn't transform his life. When that same servant went went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, three months' wages, you know, twenty grand, a lot of money. But nothing compared to the forgiveness, the the debt that he's been been forgiven. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And this guy falls down, same thing, and pleads with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Now, in this case, the man probably could pay him back. It'll take a while. I owe you three months wages. That's a lot. But just give me a a year or two. I'll, I'll do everything I can to pay you back. But the man does not have mercy. He refuses and and puts him in prison until he should pay back the debt. In other words, he needs, if you're in prison, you can't pay back the debt because you're not working. But someone in your family can uh, step up and bring the money that you owe. And that's what he's waiting on. Well, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they told the master. The master comes and, and rails on him and says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which he will never be able to do. 
he was in a great place with it all canceled. And now, because he hasn't had the same mercy, um, it's uncanceled, I guess we could say. And this is a sobering conclusion. Jesus says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's so easy for us to to look out at the offenses against us, the three months wages that have been uh, stolen from us and committed against us, and yet not to remember the gazillions of things that we've been forgiven by our Father in Heaven, by the Great King. And so the Great King here is saying, don't be dumb, come on, I've let it all go, I've released all of your sins, all of your debts, I've set you free, you are my my son, my child, uh, and I love you. Look, I hold nothing against you. Why are you holding anything against someone else? And so we can see this in many other places. This is applied. I love how the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians, I believe it's chapter 5. Uh, Forgive one another, uh, just as God in Christ forgave you. Good stuff. Lord, help us to forgive. Help us to release others. In the name of Jesus. Amen. We jump into the next section. You might know there was two famous Jewish teachers, two rabbis who differed greatly on this question and many others. There was Shammai and Hillel. They're both rabbis. Shammai taught his followers to interpret the Old Testament very rigidly. And Hillel taught his students to interpret it very loosely. Well, here they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife? for any cause. Shammai said, it's not lawful to divorce your wife for any cause. He might say only in the case of adultery or abandonment or things like that. Hillel, much looser, and he might say, yes, any cause that is right, such as a wife burning your dinner. You may divorce your wife if she's a bad cook, if she does not comply with all your demands. So they come and ask Jesus, Jesus, what side of this debate are you on? And Jesus says that you're reading the wrong verses. Instead of reading Deuteronomy 24, which allowed for divorce, and it really, it's not even allowing for divorce as much it is as it is protecting a woman who has been divorced. If a woman had been divorced, the little power that she had is even smaller. It's gone. Could she be married again? Could she be incorporated into a covenant relationship in which she will be protected and provided for and and in which she can live out her vocation uh, as a wife and mother? Could she or is she just cast aside and gone forever? Deuteronomy 24 was written by Moses to protect women, but here they have reinterpreted it to say, well, a man can divorce for whatever. Well, what is the whatever? Well, Jesus says you're reading the wrong text. Instead of reading Deuteronomy 24, read Genesis 1 and 2. That's where you need to read. And so he points them back to that. Haven't you read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? This is Genesis 1, 27. It's also Genesis 5, uh, verse 2. And then he also quotes from Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or the old word is cleave, be glued, or in the NIV, united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And I think that 
every bride and groom who on their wedding day when they when they join together this is what they intend they intend to be one flesh they intend to stay together forever but marriages crumble and fall for many reasons uh, for sin and selfishness adultery abandonment abuse uh, neglect and so Jesus says that God allowed this Moses allowed one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away why did he do this because of your hardness of heart Jesus says Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus is saying that divorce is a last resort. It's not God's will. I was thinking about marriage and divorce in in the context of the whole New Testament. And I just want to share a few thoughts here. Uh, Here's the first one, that marriage is an aspect of discipleship. Here in Matthew 19, Jesus is teaching his disciples what it means to be his follower what it means to be a follower of Christ. And especially we see this in Mark chapter 10, where this same episode is recorded by Mark. There in Mark, uh, that section, chapters 8, 9, and 10, it's all about the disciples not seeing clearly, and then him teaching, and then they begin to see clearly. It's all in the context of being a disciple. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, marriage is one very important aspect of that. It's not something you do on the side. Of your Christianity. It's something where your Christianity, your faith is a central part. And we know that, but I think it's important just, just seeing in the, the story where this is placed by Matthew and, and Mark. It's an aspect of discipleship. Number two, marriage. Jesus says that it's a covenant before God where a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. It is a it is something that God does, but it's also something the husband and wife do together. They have covenanted They have made an agreement, and a covenant in the Bible, anyway, is a lifelong agreement, which is pretty amazing because of all the covenants we see in the Old Testament, especially the Abrahamic covenant, which is this covenant of grace that would bless the whole world, which is fulfilled in the new covenant, which is what we receive now. Third thing is is that marriage is grounded in practice. It's not grounded in feelings of love. It's grounded in the practice of love. And so it has to be lived out practically. We could talk about that forever. The fourth thing is that those who are divorced or who are separated, they can be in full fellowship in the church. If you look at 1 Corinthians, there's there's the place, 1 Corinthians 5, I mentioned yesterday, there's a man who is, is sinful and and needs to be corrected, and in fact, he needs to be placed at least temporarily out of the church for church discipline. But we see in 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul talks about those who are divorced or separated, he makes no such discipline, right? He doesn't encourage any kind of discipline on on the part of the church. They are to be in full fellowship with the church. Uh, The fifth thing is, is that remarriage, remarriage is an option for Christians. Although, if you look at Luke 16, Uh, Jesus doesn't seem to give much option for that, but here we do see that he does. And then Paul, who speaks, interpreting these things in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he makes a place for Christians to be remarried. And number six, last thing is, the church must be a, uh, the, the Greek word is koinonia. The church must be a fellowship, a fellowship of friends that is satisfying and deep. And this fellowship is for those who are married. It's also for those who are single. And so may the Lord allow us to be this community. Paul says in 
in Romans 14, that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. And it is our calling as Christians to make this peace and joy and righteousness, this good life, be there for everybody. The church is not a building. It's not an institution. It's a people. It's a people gathered around Jesus, Jesus who is himself peace and joy and righteousness. And so as we gather around Jesus and listen to him, we get to give love and receive love with our brothers and sisters. And that applies to, to all, those who are single and those who are married. You can check out 1 Corinthians 7, 25 to 40. Paul uh, shares some pretty intense thoughts there. But he does make a place in the church for those who are single, which is so important, something that we undervalue, I think, in many ways. We end today with Psalm 23. You could think about this every day of your life and, and learn more of it every single day. I'll read it today in the King James Version. It goes like this. We pray, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Thanks for joining me today. I pray that you keep growing in faith. Keep hearing God's word. That's how you grow. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.